On this episode of Take This Down, I speak with Mr. Estrus Tucker, President and CEO of DEI Consultants, LLC. And we'll talk a little bit about his background growing up in the Como community, the history and the pride of Como, his time that he spent in the military and how that prepared him for his career and community activism today. You're going to want to take this down. Hello, everyone. Today we have with us Mr. Estrus Tucker, President, CEO, DEI Consultant, Community Activist, Thought Leader, but more importantly, a dear friend of mine. So, Estrus, thank you for joining us today on Take This Down. My pleasure, Ty, and my honor. One thing I always do when I start these episodes is I ask people, you know, I tell people why I invited them on the show. Uh, you know, Estrus, you and I worked together on the Race and Culture Task Force. And it was our first encounter of one, not only meeting, but working together and your leadership and how you handled such uh, a high profile, uh, stressful, but necessary process was always admirable to me. And you immediately garnered my respect, but also was a person that I need Estrus Tucker to be in my corner. I need Estrus Tucker as someone that I can lean on for wisdom and advice. And so when I thought of different individuals in the community that I wanted on this show, you were one of the people on the top of that list. So thank you for being here today and joining me on Take This Down. Oh, thank you, Ty. Your words mean a lot. So, you know, let's just kind of get right into it. So who is Estrus Tucker at his core? Oh, wow. Wonderful question. At my core, um, Native son of the Lake Como community, uh, historic African-American community on the west side of Fort Worth. <laughs> and I would say uh, a mother's son. You know, I grew up uh, a mother and a grandmother and two younger sisters. So I was big brother and the only son and the only grandson. So accountability, leadership and humility were, were values I learned at an early age and a very good framing. Uh, but my experience in my family and my community really has shaped and continues to shape how I approach relationships, challenges, opportunities, strategies. That's the core of estrus that is framed around uh, love. And I work in settings where love, the word love isn't something you that's welcome, but it, it's a value that directs me in, internally uh, as I look at how I want to be in the world and what I want to support and resource in the world. It always comes down to love and to kindness and to uh, justice and community um, and the, the spirit, the inner life, not so much the religious, but the spiritual dimension. And so those are all kind of threads of estrus. Oh, wow. You know, that that's that's good. Yeah. That's good. You know, now I don't know which direction to go. <laughs> you know, at first I was going to go with the you know learning a little bit more about the Como community, but also know your thought leader that's, you know, been leaned on for as far as South Africa, Northern Ireland to here in the States. Uh, I know a lot about Como, but I'd love to learn more. And I'm sure a lot of our viewers would love to learn more about community. What does Como community mean to you? Or is, is it the line pride, if, I, if I'm not mistaken? That's exactly a big part of it is, is the pride uh, and the sense of our history. 
in particular in the face of, of you know disparities and inequities like communities around the country and particularly working class communities and particularly working class communities of color you know as retail industries changed and the era of the mom and pop shops just kind of dissolved and and significantly during that time of segregation Como was full of businesses, right? Uh, you name it, um, ice cream, a movie theater, you know, and a recreational pool hall, just lots of businesses, plenty of restaurants, and mostly ran by Como residents. And so just as it has around the country, as those times changed, it, it impacted us economically. So we didn't have quite the sufficiency that we had when I was coming up, actually, that before me, but when I was coming up, that had been the mainstay. It had begun to decline. So, but a, a great sense of pride, a great sense of um, ownership uh, of what happens in Como. Como is kind of somewhat isolated as it relates to uh, African Americans in the city, and this little spot on the west side, surrounded by affluent uh, white neighborhoods, and then a, a cowboy business district, and then a, a rail yard right, right. behind Vickery. So, and then we have the park on the on the east side. So we were pretty pretty isolated, and so we took not only pride, but there was a great sense of of uh, respect. We felt that we wanted to uh, make sure that we were receiving and we were giving. Uh, all of those kind of values are challenged in in the type of societies that we have moved toward particularly around economics. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so, uh, and early on, we were well known for a higher level of voting participation, uh, voter engagement than the rest of the city. That was kind of part of our survival as well. Um, and that's uh, one of the things that we also then have been challenged by going into the future, keeping younger and younger generations engaged with being uh, aware of the issues. It's hard in this era right. because so many of the issues are framed well beyond the community. And then they're, you know, then they're brought to the community to be adopted or to be swallowed whole. So to stand in that gap between what's real and relevant for, for historic African-American community that's changing uh, our, in ourselves as far as the demographics uh, it's it's a little tricky. I just recently just learned, and, and correct me if my if my history is is incorrect, but I was told or learned that Como community was originally established uh, because some of the affluent areas, the predominantly white areas, uh, they wanted their servants and housekeepers to live a little bit closer to where they traditionally were in the Riverside communities or in the Stop Six. Is that is that accurate, or is that close to the mark, or? I would say it's in proximity. I wouldn't call it completely accurate. You know, uh, kind of oral history is, is a little tricky when it's right. not documented. And right. so kind of the premise of, 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 of servants and laborers who served in the affluent white community. So that relationship is true. But I think what's missing is that it's Como residents who took the initiative and purchased the land. Their, their employers really didn't have anything to do with it other than maybe they did not try to boycott or resist it. But the land, you know, this was a, a crash. Land values were plummeting. So the, that track where Como is was very, very affordable. And, and so 
that invited um, African-Americans who worked in nearby, that made sense. And so once that tide started, then, you know, just the way segregation patterns continue to work, uh, it's easier to have more African-Americans there than to think of uh, this being a space for for, for white uh, residents. So, gotcha. yeah, gotcha. so that's, that's a little nuance. The, the way that I tend to think of it, uh, Como is historically uh, an African-American community. It wasn't created by white flight with African-Americans moving into houses formerly occupied by white residents. So gotcha. that's a distinction. Okay, that's good. That's good to know. And I appreciate the enlightenment <laughs> there. Uh, but, you know, just kind of continue down, you know, talking a little bit about segregation. So you, you grew up going through, going to uh, segregated schools in Como. And if I think if my research is correct, in 71, that's when schools were desegregated in Fort Worth. And then you ultimately uh, finished at Western Hills. You know, how was it growing up in Como, going to segregated schools, then having to transition to the uh, desegregated schools at Western Hills? Now, Todd, that was heartbreaking. It was heart wrenching. Uh, the school board, Fourth ISC school boards, made the decision like in November, no November, December of, of the year before, I guess that would have been 71. 70, right, in 70. Uh, but they felt it would be, uh, uh, there'd be an outlet, uh, an outcry, uh, uh, you know, uh, repercussions to let the community know. So they kept that quiet. And they told us about two weeks before school was out. Wow. So I've been, a, you know, all the way through, and I was a, a, a junior, getting ready to finish with my other classmates, looking forward to that prime year of being a senior with all the accolades. Mm -hmm. And two weeks before school is out, they tell us they're closing Como and we were going to another school. We had the option of going to Arlington Heights or Western Hills. Our class did. Then later on, Arlington Heights became it. So it, it was heartbreaking. So I was a member of the National Honor Society, uh, like a number of, of, of our members in our class, very academically proficient. Um, it didn't it didn't it didn't hurt us too bad. It didn't, it didn't interfere with our love for learning and success. Um, but for a lot of Como residents, a lot of my peers in the junior class, I think the disruption of that homeschool just squandered their energy, their love of learning. What love of learning they had, right, uh, was tied to the kind of uh, connectivity with the African-American teachers and the history and the culture. So that that was a big blow. And then when we get to the other schools, and I wouldn't say that Western Hills mistreated us, but it was clearly uh, a, a greater welcoming for our athletes, for, for football players, basketball players, and track stars than it was for National Honor Society members or debate club. Uh, they didn't really even reach out to us regarding the National Honor Society, at least not the seniors. I was only there one year. And so looking back, that just kind of shows some of the kind of the shallowness of expectations of these new African-American students. And I think maybe they had two. Western Hills was a new school, a, a pretty new school then. I think they only had maybe two African-Americans prior to Como coming. And we came in a bunch. Right. So that was kind of culture shock for them. Wasn't a lot of conflict and violence. So we did get along, but it just, it wasn't that kind it's of different. 
Different. Very different. We weren't really prepared to step into even scholarship opportunities that we would have gotten at Como. I don't know how the district looked at that, but we were we were there, but very little, uh, a few token scholarships, but nothing substantial. And it didn't feel like they prepared to promote the next step of our education for the seniors. That, that is, so it was it was pretty pretty traumatic. And that it's like kind of dreams being lost. Right. You know, with that transition from, you know, from segregated schools to Como High School to desegregated in Western Hills, did you see that did that directly impact the Como community? Like from a, uh, I'll say, economic development says or like, you know, just community pride? Or did, would you say it almost probably enhanced the, the, the Como pride, if you will? I don't know if I'd say it enhanced it. It, it didn't deplete it. But it was a blow, the school. So we tend to think of Como, especially historically, but even today, uh, schools and churches, right? And some historic clubs, but especially schools uh, and churches. And so our schools from Como Elementary to Como High School, and then we had a few daycares, and now we have some private academies. But those two public schools were at the heart of our community. And so to have one closed feels like your your part of your identity is, right. is is cut off and through the years that followed um a lot of different changes and trying to come up with the school that lasted ended up landing on a montessori model that lasted for a very long time and then right around the 50th anniversary of the original closing of como high school the district closed the, the montessori school and so we're in the process of now our como alumni which is one way the pride is expressed, we have one of the oldest, longest-running uh, alumni in the city. Especially when you think of the the base of our alumni was based uh, on a school that was closed in 1971. So we have alumni classes who never set foot in the historic Como High School, but their sense of identity to the community in school is so strong that they have uh, reunions and alumni gatherings based upon their school identity, so, yeah. So, you know, after finishing high school in Western Hills, uh, you know, uh, did you know what you wanted to do next? Y yes and no. Um, you know, I've tried to always be responsive to opportunities, and, and at, at, at 18, it was a little, that was very, very tricky. But what I was responsive to was, was friendship. And so I was preparing to, uh, so TCU was on the list, U UTA was on the list. Um, and once we got our diploma, my best, one of my best friends, were about six of us, came to, to us and dropped a bombshell. He told us that he had been talking with the Army recruiter and was getting ready to enlist in the United States Army. Oh, wow. This is during Vietnam era. We were first, I think we took it mostly as a gag. You know, what's the, what's the gag? Uh, and he dared us to go with him to downtown Fort Worth to the recruiting station. And it was five of us that went down there. And, and two of us were planning to go to college. But five of us went down and, and that recruiter did a number on us. He, he painted a picture. I said did a number. I mean, he, he captured our imagination of adventure and, and camaraderie in a way that none of us was expecting. And then he was able to 
arrange it under what's called a buddy plan. So we were pretty safe that we wouldn't go to Vietnam, but we'd be on this grand adventure as Airborne Rangers. Um, and so we all enlisted under the buddy plan uh, about two weeks later uh, that took us uh, California, Colorado, and then at that one window of international travel, uh, one went to Korea and I went to the dangerous, treacherous uh, area of Hawaii. Uh, that was my that was my overseas. So gotcha, yeah, gotcha. it's a long roundabout response, but um, yeah. Well, first, thank you for your service. You know, from coming from Como, uh, being as you mentioned, you know, uh, I forget the exact words, but you know, being raised by your mom and grandma. Uh, how was that moving? You know, away at that oh, time. Oh, I was. Oh, I was hard. Ty. It was hard for me. Hard for for them. And yet, uh, it was almost like a rites of passage. Um, uh, I think my mother understood, maybe even better than I, the, the importance of that. Um, and then, in a sense, what made it easier is that we took so much of coma with us. It, it was ultimately it was six of us that were all stationed together and at boot camp. Um, and it just so happens, and none of us were ROTC. And I don't remember now exactly what they were, how they arranged all of it, but we were all in the same um, company and in the same kind of the squad. Gotcha. Um, and then I started out as platoon guide, which is the flag bearer, right? Mm -hmm. And so and so I ran track. So uh, the platoon leader was on the other side and, and this flag bearer was the platoon guide was on the other side. And we ran everywhere, you know, we did the drills and all of that. And the platoon leader who was an ROTC graduate. We're all Como guys. We're 18. Um, I think he was like 26, graduate, had graduated. But he always dropped out. Um, and so um, we had a, an incredible African-American drill sergeant that taught us so much. Maybe day three of the drills, uh, when this guy dropped out, the drill sergeant called my name took the flag from me, gave it to him, made him platoon guide and made me platoon leader. Um, and it stayed that way for the rest of the duration of boot camp. And so I was a platoon leader. One of the squad members were a squad leader from Como and everybody else was in his squad. So we had a real tight knit group of Como at boot camp. And that, 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 made, it, um, that made it better. Um, I learned so much in the military, the things I did with Race and Culture Task Force, a lot of, of, of the racial equity or racial collaboration and strategies happened in the military. Um, by then, the military was integrated, but there was lots of conflict. There was a lot of class conflict as well as racial conflict. And my role early on was involved with creating spaces for kind of conversations, what I still do today. So it you know, started then. You know, you, you, you took the words right out of my mouth because I was just going to go to the fact that, you know, we're talking the early 70s. You know, the country is still adjusting to, I say adjusting to integration. And now you're in the military leading a group of men and women uh, from Como that, you know, people across the, the country have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Was that a challenge at 18? Oh, it was a huge challenge at any age, but especially 18. I don't know if I'd have been able to do it if I didn't have a posse with me and, you know, having the close friends. And three of us were in the same homeroom from the first grade all the oh, wow. way up. So just long history. That made it uh, made it 
not easy, but it just made it uh, easier than what it would have been. And then it reminded me, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. You know, I take pride in the black public school teachers. I, I know all their names from the first grade all the way through. They made all the difference in the world. In so many ways, these black drill sergeants who were affiliated with this particular company, and my drill sergeant in particular, Drill Sergeant Johnson, uh, was like a father figure. He took it just like a like black teachers. He took it personally, our success. He was hard on us than anyone, but he never failed to communicate, at least to me, that that harshness, that discipline he was he was encouraging was because he had high expectations. And he wanted me to have high expectations of myself. So I I, I don't I couldn't imagine a better uh, outcome than to be in that particular space with that particular drill sergeant. That's, yeah. that's good. It's almost like, you know, it was you're you were being you're being led to the military because you needed to come in contact with these drill sergeants who yeah. continued to pour into you what you had already had poured into you while you're growing up through the Como school system. Yeah, yeah. And, and I couldn't have anticipated that. No way I would have imagined that. And if it wouldn't have been from my close friend talking with the recruiter, I, I just, you know, the military was not at all in, in my mind. I had witnessed so many brothers coming back to Como, you know, older classmates coming back to Como disfigured, oh. mentally disfigured. Uh, deranged you know just it, it was just harsh um yeah all the bad news that you remember about the narrative of vietnam you know it it was double in communities like como so i never would have chose that on my own and i had i had some concerns even when we went in together but at every stage there was someone there that you know that kind of took me under their wing and and, and encouraged me okay so with you know, the, the, the Como roots, the military background, you know, I, I can't help but ask, what led you to, you know, diversity and inclusion and equity? Oh, uh, you know, that's a that's an easy answer because it feels like I've been doing that work all along. Those are those are, those are particular language, right, that's used. But to be a from my vantage point, to be a black man in this country. You, are, you know something about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you're going to be a leader and a black man in this country, in particular from a working class community, um, yeah, you're going to know something about navigating that terrain. Uh, leading it may be a little uh, different, but so it's just a matter of, 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 of language, of language change. Um, and so today, as I, I serve on faculties of a couple of national organizations um, and, and, and lead whether it is um, a keynote address or a facilitated workshop um, or designing the same for national uh, workshops or conferences. It's some of the same basic elements. Now, I, I use some different concepts now and some additional language, right? The vocabulary is, is, is big, but at the, at the core of it, it's about human relationships. How do humans cultivate spaces where they can be honest and open and cultivate trust. It's about humans. And because of our long history of racism and sexism and classism and a number of other isms, right, around differently able, um, then that creates kind of the tension to pay attention to, to race or to class or to gender. 
uh, or gender identity. Uh, but yeah, DEI, and I can just about remember when we first started using that at, on, the, on the national stage, uh, but the content has always been about human relationships. And if you are, if you're reasonably skilled about helping facilitate engagement and conversations, knowing basically how adults learn, you know, uh, knowing the role of fear and ego, some real basic mechanics, uh, and then being able to listen well. Um, yeah, you know, I think when I was going through business school at Baylor, I, you know, I don't recall ever hearing directly DEI. Right. You know, I think it was more so people management right. is what, you know, the, the term that was taught to us. But, you know, if, you know, for what you do, you know, how do we uh, obtain or optimize, you know, you know, cultivating an environment to where one, we're promoting everyone's strength, but we're also being inclusive. Well, certainly have to do it carefully. <laughs> Whatever you do, you got to do it very carefully and do it respectfully. And really to do it in a way that it starts with, with listening, particularly within organizations, uh, companies or systems. It's always about people. Uh, and yes, some things are, you can standardize. I'm not a big fan of that, you know, DEI now, I'd say, and it's going to change. I'll give it two or three more years. Right now, DEI, people are popping up out, out the woodwork everywhere doing DEI. I think many of them, most of them mean well, um, but it's kind of a, a fly by night. You know, this is, they've created something, a uh, cookie cutter model. They think that DEI is this. And so they go get blocks to do this and they offer it. It's never, it's never that simple. Uh, and so what but I think the core of it is, it's about listening. If you can create a space and, and basically encourage leadership to start there, let's start with creating a space and inviting in your people to come and respond to some carefully crafted, open and honest questions, no leading question, but honest, relevant questions about the organization, about the mission, about the strategy, and, and invite their voices. Sometimes that's, um, that's as simple as it gets, often because many cultures aren't conducive to people speaking up. They're not gonna, they don't trust the leadership and they're not gonna trust a consultant. Uh, so you have to do some things to help demonstrate that their voice matters, right, as the direction of the company. But it always starts with listening and whatever best practices, and there are a lot of best practices, but what I do very well around the country is, is tie together viable, relevant, best practices with best fit. The best fit is the culture. That best practices don't matter if they're not aligned with the culture, if they're not taking advantage of the assets of a culture and the deficits, you know, the opportunities and the challenges and all of that is captured in the stories of, of the people. So to get a space where they can share what they think and what they feel, that's how it starts. The strategy builds from there. And that sounds overly simple. And I think sometimes I get paid more because well, don't give all your traits. Uh, well, well, yeah. You make sure you still get paid. <laughs> easier said, it's easier said than done. But it's, it's very simple. But when you say the simple, they want they, they almost invite you to make it complicated, right? Add some th other things because that kind of substantiates the, the what we want you to do. Right. So. Well, you know, in, in my profession in particular, what I do, you know, I, sometimes I 
get to see a lot of corporate corruption and get the opportunity to depose uh, disgruntled employees who, you know, for a lot of the things that you mentioned, who, you know, management may not know how these people truly feel until, you know, they're being questioned their exams by me. And it's, oh, well, we didn't know these issues, you know, were going in. But one thing that you mentioned that I really like is that you tailor something to that 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 culture. You know, too many times I've heard or I see consultants just have a one size fits all. And that, that doesn't work. You know, if company A has a culture that that needs this, it doesn't mean it's going to work at the next. And right. so, you know, how do you go about one making sure your your clients know your expectations, but also know that I'm not just going to give you a, a cookie cutter. We're going to have to be intentional about this process. Significantly starts with values. And I know values is an overused word, but I try to to ascertain the values, the core values of a company, uh, of a firm, of an organization. Often though, those are printed up. And, and so my first uh, challenge is to vet those, to test those, to kind of to ground those in reality, because it's one thing to write them on a piece of paper, but you know, is this what you're actually practicing? What would you think your employees would say? Uh, how would they rate you on how well uh, you reflect the company reflects these values? And that's usually sobering, sometimes um, just disillusioning because. They're on paper, but the people don't believe that they're serious about those values. So it always starts with being clear about what are the core values, not a laundry list, but what are the core values that determine uh, success for your your company um, and success for your people? Um, The other side of that coin is I have some values. And for this to be a good fit as a consultant client relationships, our values have to be reasonably compatible. So I'm very transparent with what we lead with, uh, with DEI. Uh, and, and it's been kind of our value proposition as an individual consultant is what I led with. And now as president and CEO of a, a DEI consultant firm is, is what we lead with. And, and it's another DEI. So the real key, and this is, it's not really a secret uh, though not many people use it, but I don't think many firms or many consultants would know how to implement, which makes it easy for me to say it anyway. I'm not giving anything gotcha. away. Gotcha. But what we focus on, uh, a value-driven strategy, is DEI as dignity, empathy, and integrity. Those are precursors to advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, It starts with values and then it moves toward practices. What are the sustainable practices as as people? How do we approach uh, people that are different? How do we uh, talk with people that that we perceive to be enemies or adversaries? Um, So whatever the heading is, there are sets of practices that you want to frame. They don't have to be brand new. Many practices we, we suggest and then tailor fit them to the particular culture. We don't do the tailor fitting. We kind of guide them and the organization does it. But those practices are what we leave within the firm. Practices informed by specific values, and that just named three of them, there, there are others. But those practices 
or what sustains the effort. So what keeps momentum when our contract is over with, the way they collaborate, the way they build teams, the way they engage diverse publics and stakeholders are all guided by certain values and certain practices that evolve, right? They're not static. They're going to change and they're able to change because one of those core practices has to do with listening uh, to diverse stakeholders. So that's it kind of in a nutshell. You know, I, I was reading something on your, your website. I'm going to pull out my notes <laughs> to make sure that I, I, I read it correctly to where you said you inspire courage, integrity and compassion. What, yeah. what does that mean to you? Oh, uh, that means that's the little bar from Como. Right. So I, I grew up um, um, significantly influenced by people I never met, but they inspired me by their words. Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin, uh, Tony Morrison, and then many, many others. But I found inspiration and I found relevance to my whatever I was going through. It's small scale, right? In a teenage boy. Um, but it, 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 it was relevant for me. It gave me a foothold. It gave me something to build my, my next steps on. Um, so it takes courage to confront your fears, your insecurities, the things that, well, obviously that frighten you, right? right. One thing about Como, uh, the pride is one side. The other side is, is, is courage uh, because things aren't going to be... Um, Ideal, right? So what do you do with a le not only less than ideal, what do you do with a threatening environment, a threatening situation? So the kind of courage that that is inspired by role models, by words and language that that connect with me. Uh, those are those are all um, kind of the, the, the stories and remedies of a, of a young boy growing up in Como as a young man in the military, as a, a, a young African-American man in Fort Worth, too many times being the only uh, African-American on a committee, on a board. And so these this was early, but there are still settings that that's, and this is one of the frustrations with all the incredible, brilliant uh, men and women of color, black, brown, red, and yellow, we still have so many boards and commissions and bodies that are just of one race uh, and not reflective of our diversity. So it seems like the more things change, the more things stay the same. But for me, the inspiration and courage and integrity are just core to what works for me as a person, as a leader uh, within organizations and then within a company. Uh, then one last piece, the integrity piece that often is different how, than how I hear it portrayed in, in organizations and other systems. We're not talking about a code of conduct, a list of values and rules that you affirm. I mean, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. That's really not integrity. Integrity has more to do with alignment within you. What do you deeply value? What do you treasure? What do you understand to be the principles you want to build your life? Once you identify that, how well are you living into that? Are you living out of those values? And integrity is when your inner values and principles aligns with your outer action and attitude and thinking. You know, I think not to cut you off, I think, you know, how I've described integrity to someone is it's how you act or respond when your back's against the wall. Yeah. You know, that's because that's when you're at your core. You're going to have to reveal you show it. up. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not the personal representative, right. but it's it's going to be 
the the real you, the, the most authentic you that one shows up. Uh, you know, I, I love how you, you mentioned, you know, Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. You know, for me, I would say I grew up in a different era generation where I can't readily point to those types of figureheads who provided me like with my inspiration, but it's more so like the Estrus Tuckers of the world, the Bob Ray Sanders, the Anthony Lyons, or even my my childhood coach, Raymond Kitchen and Jesse Hudson, who were men that had a presence in me, but they, they showed me, you know, I'm, I would say how to live with that compassion, how to have that integrity, but also uh, be a black man in the community uh, and also uh, be not only well-respected, but making sure that you are taking care of, you know, things, finding things, leaving yeah. things better than what you find them. And I, you know, I, I forget where I heard this at. And, you know, it's, it's that if you're going to be in a room, be present, hmm. you know, have your presence felt. That doesn't mean be the loudest one. Right. But, you know, if you're going to sit at the table, sit at the table. And so okay. uh, you, you speak about, you know, uh, the lack of diversity for all shades of the rainbow in our not on, on the local level. You know, how do we go about addressing that? Calling it out um, and being responsible um, to to not only make recommendations, but cultivate relationships, uh, connect people. Uh, and for a lot of leaders in my generation, and, and there are a lot of them are doing it, I would say n- not enough. And that is, I, I want to say move out of the way, but it's not so much a moving out of the way as it is stepping into your next adventure, right? As um, as a boomer, you know, there are some things, and that's part of what this, the DEI consultant firm was about for me in the first place. I wanted to create a mechanism to hand off a lot of the work that I've been doing for, for 20 years. I'm not planning on doing it for another not long at all, <laughs> right? So it's going to turn into a retirement <laughs> right. announcement. No, I'm not going to retire. Um, but I'm going to move on up to something else, and I don't, I don't mean dying, right? Okay. But there are adventures, there are things that are, are are that have energy for me that I want to explore. And so, in our culture, we still uh, are are log jammed because too many leaders, male and female, think that. They're at the epitome of their contribution because of a title or because of perceived authority and power. And and too many are staying there and there are younger people uh, wanting to step into that, ready to step into that, capable of stepping into that. Um, And the transition is just not happening. And it's uh, the model. It's not only general leadership, it's, it's businesses, a lot of black local businesses don't go much further than the founder because there's the, the way of transitioning, you know, the succession strategy planning is just not very robust. Uh, and so younger prof- younger people who could step into that get disillusioned or go out and do their own thing. Um, and, you know, we die at the helm. Uh, and so one of the things we've got to do a better job is, is trusting Younger generations, engaging younger generations, uh, respecting younger generations. And the flip side is true because this happens in Fort Worth a lot, too. A lot of younger generations, are because they're not in relationship, they don't really trust that handoff or they um, don't trust the strategy. Not that they have to follow lockstep, right, because you, you want to innovate, you need creativity. Right. But 
it's a relationship. And so there's a respect that goes both ways. And uh, I think 15 years ago, I blamed in just my way of looking at things. I held to a higher degree of responsibility. The older leaders, I said, you, you know, you at that time, I guess I was still saying you. Now I'm <laughs> saying we need to do a better job of opening space and moving out of the way. Uh, moving because there's, there's other work for us to do, not lesser work, great work, but but it's time to, for, to, to bring in new blood, right? Uh, new ideas and creativity. I'm, I'm still saying that, but I, these last 14 years for sure, there there is a, a an arrogance of younger generations and, and they get that arrogance from the older generations too, but there's an arrogance, not always because there's some brilliant ones, but they have to be very careful about how you cultivate mutuality and respect so that that handoff, that transition happens. And we, and where we are now, because of the economy, because it is hard right. to sustain a business or a professional practice. It's no, that's not easy. Um, market share. Everything is so very competitive. We've got to have more systems, small s systems, and I'll say specifically with an African American community and population. I think that's a, it's also for all races. But if I'm thinking of African Americans specifically in communities and like Como, though Como in a few years, the next census Como will be about is estimated to be about half Hispanic and half African American. So change is happening, but. If we're going to have viable institutions and organizations and systems that are diverse, uh, that reflect the beauty of our, our communities and our city, then that transition has to happen. We've got to cultivate better rapport and relationships uh, with intergenerationally uh, and create opportunities. And we both have to take, I say we both, it's all, actually it's, it's several generations now. But there has to be risk-taking both ways. The older ones have to be willing to reach, the humility to reach out and bring in and move out of the way. And then the young ones got to be willing to build relationship with the old, older leaders and business owners in a way that they trust happens both ways. So, you know, everything you said, it just made me think about, you know, how do you plan on doing this? Uh, and I, I say you, how yeah. do you plan? Because, you know, I don't know anyone that's more qualified that that can bring, I'm going to say, the two worlds together. Well, that's my that's the value proposition that I am crafting as we speak. So that's why I created DI Consultants as a platform. It, it wasn't intended that DI Consultants, even if we keep that same name and there's some possibility we may have some other names in the very near future, but it won't be about what we do uh, in, centrally. It will be what we catalyze. It'll be what we um, evoke, what we uh, encourage, cultivate. So the idea of DEI consultants was to have a diversity of younger consultants coming in the door, preparing them, not 100%, because a lot of the preparation is innovation, creativity that they bring innately within themselves, but creating a platform where they can can explore these additional um, guidelines, strategies, and practices without um, jettisoning or abandoning 
the core of who they are, bringing their whole identity and learning how to make integrity work with these new skill sets and the things that they want to explore and, and deploying them around the country. So right now, you know, we've got clients all over the country and some places beyond this country. Uh, what we're trying to do is begin to build a consultant base. And I say we, because I'm not going to be the one. I'm, I'm just trying to lay out the blueprint, do enough to start some things. And then I got a few books I want to write. I want to, I don't mind speaking. It's hard to speak. And you got a dozen things right. waiting in your desk. So, so that's at least where the thinking is to create. And uh, this is too cliche-ish for it to have the kind of ma- meaning that I, that I feel but it's about contributing. That's the word, contributing to a movement, not being a movement, but contributing to a movement that is bigger than politics, that is bigger than greed. Uh, you know, capitalism for sure has been a fuel that has advanced us significantly. But unfettered capitalism has also been the nemesis that have, have has dehumanized us as well as the other part has propulsed us into success. So, um, yeah, but being part of kind of part of a grand experiment that this democracy has always been about, it's just that the experiment has been very, very soured, very dehumanizing, very disillusioning, you know, of late. And I think a lot of that is our politics. A lot of that is uh, unfettered capitalism that where you have businesses who do more harm than they do good. And those are all value value laden. So it's, we just need more and more people. And we've got some incredible people around the country and in the city of Fort Worth. But we just have to keep stepping up and speaking out and standing up. So, you know, and you, you mentioned politics and, you know, and I, I asked this, you know, when you're growing up as a little boy in Como, you know, in the military, did you ever think or imagine that you would be a thought leader or or, or confident uh, uh, or someone that elected officials, mayors, uh, state reps, city councils that would come to for your wisdom and your guidance? I don't know that I ever imagined that. I, I, I think what I was taught at an early age and what I continue to believe in and learn about is that, you know, much of where you go depends upon how you treat people. You know, uh, said Maya Angelou, people will forget what you say. They'll never forget how you make them make them feel. Right. And so I always try to make sure that I'm, I'm kind of leading with a sensitivity to people. Uh, and the older I got, I realized that I had to put forth a little more effort, particularly for people that, you know, that I, I guess I could say, yeah, people I don't like, right? People <laughs> that clash with me. Are, are, are important lessons. And I want to be able to create a space that's respectful uh, even to people I don't particularly like or don't agree with um, and, so, and to take that personally, right? That's my responsibility, how I deal with that. It's not their responsibility. It's my responsibility. So I've spent a lot of years wrestling with that so that now I'm always thinking about how to do that or how to do that better. Um, but that's the small scale. And I think if you take care of the details, the the bigger outcomes sometimes just happen even unaware to you. So uh, I'm, I'm humble if I can be a, a, a help or resource to people in some authority. But I do know for some of them, the reason they, they listen to me is because of how I 
have treated them, how I've engaged them, how I respect them over time. And, it's, and, and many of them, it's not because I always agree with them. I don't. I don't agree, but I'm not in their position, right? I don't have to agree with what they, well, there are some limits, but in general, I don't have to agree with how they do everything. I have to trust their intentions and their integrity. And if either of those get out in balance, then my relationship would be different. But I think how I relate with people has allowed me to, to be um, to be in some spaces where I could be, uh, you know, uh, to where I could contribute. All right. And I know you don't personally consider yourself this, but I'm going to say this on your behalf. Okay. You know, there's many people who believe that, you know, you are the the gatekeeper for Como, that you have your your, your finger on the pulse and that, you know, if, if something is to happen or if someone is trying to, you know, gain access or favor in a community, you are that person, whether real, perceived, true, factual or what have you, you know, there's a or, you know, there, there's a thought or belief, you know, how do you handle that? Uh, staying humble and, and correcting people when they say that to me out loud, you know, <laughs> I don't believe there's, I don't, there's never been a person, even the, the incredible Viola Pitts, uh, the, known as the mayor of Como, it was never just her running everything. There's always been kind of a, a village, a village of leaders. And it is that way now. Our village now is becoming more Hispanic uh, in its population and our challenge is how do we encourage, uh, give more of them the opportunity to, to lead and, and to make space for the leadership. But yes, I think humility is important. Uh, it's, it was important to me as a young boy and a young man as to who I looked up to, right? Uh, a humble, uh, celebrity, a humble leader, someone who saw you. It didn't matter what they could accomplish, but they saw you, they spoke to you. Simple, simple things. And so I try to continue to model that. Uh, and I'm, I'm not a very, um, uh, yeah, I'm not a very ego driven person. So if, you know, political aspirations uh, that, uh, that some groups um, have in the city uh, as power brokers, you know, um, I'm not very vulnerable because I don't I don't really believe most of that. Sure. I believe that the the greatest power, and you think about a community like Como or a city like Fort Worth, the greatest power is never the, the, an individual leader. It's right. always in how that leader facilitates the leadership of many others. And if they're doing that well, then the others earn and deserve as much credit for what happens as that leader does. And so that keeps me humble. Uh, the voices of my grandmother, big mama and my mother keeps me humble, you know, uh, if I'm to think that I'm, I'm all that. Uh, but but it's mostly about the way I was raised in Como. Uh, something about being in a working class uh, community and environment where nobody volunteered because that didn't make sense to volunteer. We were just good neighbors. You right. did things because they were your neighbors or family. And so, um, yeah. You know, and you, you mentioned, you know, I always, it makes me think about my big mama or my mama, you know, but was there something that, you know, they, they said that always stuck with you or oh. still sticks with you to this day? We don't have enough time for me to, to <laughs> give all those. Uh, but I know um, two things, you know, uh, one, my grandmother, she would say this and my grandmother outlived all of her children. She outlived my mother and I, I spent less life, the last seven years of her life, you know, I was, uh, I shared a home with her and um, 
But she would always say, boy, you sure dream big. You know, she'd ask me what I'm doing or what I, what, what do I do? And, you know, sooner or later, a few weeks, months later, she'd ask me that same question. But she always said, you sure dream big. And it didn't feel like a put down. It felt like a boost, like a lift. You know, it's almost to say, keep dreaming big and keep bringing in other others. And so, so I have a little plaque on my wall that says dream big. So that's big mama. My mother, and it's, it's not new. You, you have the many sons, many children, you know, have said this, but she said, I'm proud of you. You know, that, 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 that makes my life, not my day. That makes my life to live in a way that I think my mother uh, is proud of me. That, that does it. Uh, and that's a high bar. My mother was the epitome of love and grace and beauty and 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 um, and uh, I don't I don't like any of the words that are coming to my mind, but she, I never felt that she got what she deserved. I think she was the hardest working person I knew. She sacrificed for family, and you know I I, I was she and she she died much too soon, but you know wanted to buy her house, wanted to buy whatever. She deserved much more than that. And so, yeah, so that is, uh, for her to be proud, inspires me to want to do for, for others like my mother. Some in my family, but some I don't know. But I know the struggle. And so I know that a lot of good people of all colors don't get what they deserve, don't get justice, right? Don't get equity. That drives me. And at the core of that is, you know, I want my mother to be proud. Uh, so so those, are, those are those are big words for me. Well, well you know, I know I, I can tell you I never had the privilege of knowing your mom, but I know she is proud mm -hmm. of you. And I know your grandma is proud of you as well. And, you know, I know I consider it uh, honor and, and privilege to know you. So I'm proud it's of mutual. you as well. Thank so, you, my brother. you know, uh, speaking of just, you know, being proud, you know, what are you most proud of, not only professionally, but from from you as an individual? You know, uh, you know, if you look back at when we're standing up 20 years from now at your retirement and you're giving <laughs> this speech, you know, what is it that Estrus Tucker will be most proud of? Oh, wow. I, the first thought is that I, I dare, I, I, I don't think that it could ever be one thing. It's, it's always going to kind of be a list. But at the top, or top level of the list, it's for sure it, it will have to do with family. You know, how I have advocated and supported my family, so that's a personal, but how I have advocated and supported not personally, but advocated for policies, positions, and leadership that supports family. I think in our country, and Fort Worth is not an exception, Texas is certainly not an exception, we give lip service to supporting family. We don't really have laws, policies, procedures, practices that are implemented that are really supporting families, all families. Uh, some families, if within the finance, but 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 working class families, let me see, maybe say it like that, working class family and, and poor families, our policies do them harm. Our values, our core values do them harm. Our markets do them harm. And so, you know, 20 years from now, whenever I want to be proud of, you know, 
my daughter will be 22 then, 20 years from now. I, I want her to be a, a brilliant, loving, kind, open-hearted human being, and I, I know she will. That will make me proud. And, and my nieces and nephews and, and my family, I want them to be, be well. Uh, and I want to be in a city. I, I can't imagine leaving Fort Worth. I want to be in a city that really values all families, regardless of income or race or ethnicity or who they love or who they sleep with. But we've learned to really value human beings. So that's, that's the deal. And, and, and it comes full circle because that's really what I think I'm trying to do, even in DEI, is trying to create spaces where human beings, that's the trump card, N- not our color, our race, or our political affiliation, but, but human beings are, are precious and valuable. Uh, and our laws and our policies and our practices and everything we do centers around that. 20 years is not likely. It's not likely to happen in anybody's lifetime who's alive today, right? Because right? we got a long way to go. But that's that's my big dream. That's what I would hope. That's good. That's good. But, you know, I know we're kind of out of time right now, but Estrus, I want to thank you again for taking this time. Um, you know, the whole point of Take This Down is to create a space and give people like yourself your flowers for everything that you have done uh, to make our community what it is. So, you know, from your work in the community, from your professional work with DEI consultants for helping make Fort Worth, Tarrant County a better place for, for our children uh, and for the generation that comes after them. Uh, I just want to thank you for oh. your time. Thank you, Ty. This has been great, my brother. Uh, Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Take This Down. You're going to want to continue to stay engaged because you never know who our next guest may be. We're available on YouTube and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.